Today is the last day of our spring seven-day session, 3rd of September 2016. And this morning we're going to take up a koan. This is number 48 in the Muon Khan, Kempo's One Road. Actually, I had um, started work on a different talk, um, but I got some feedback from the monitors um, about where we ended up yesterday with the, that final uh, four lines of the Meta Sutta, and um, they wanted to hear more. <laughs> it felt, didn't feel like I had, had really um, covered the meaning of this, especially this final line is not born again into this world. So um, we're going to have a look, we're going to have a little bit more of a look into this coming from the perspective of this koan, Kempo's One Road. And just a, a reminder, the last, this last verse goes, By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. And uh, it sort of connects us back to the very beginning of the sutta, which talked about the one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. This is really the one who knows the path to, to nirvana. And in some translations, it's more put in a more aspirational form. So it's the one who is on the path to peace or aspires to peace. So the beginning and the ending of the sutta uh, link together and bring us back to realization, to awakening at the end, as it was what started the, the sutta as well. And we're, we're given here the, the, um, the understanding of classical Buddhism is that um, if we can be um, not holding to fixed views, not um, abiding anywhere, then um, this will bring clarity of vision. if we're not um, slaves to our likes and dislikes in a, in a completely thoroughgoing way, then we can um, enter nirvana, not be born again, whereas the original says not, not lie again in a womb. So the problem with this form formulation is that, that it sounds like there is this world of suffering and strife and that the goal to leave it is to leave it and, and go to this other place called Nibbana. It's not named as such in the sutra. Nibbana in the Pali, Nirvana in, in the Sanskrit. So what, from a Zen point of view, can we say about nirvana? Roshi Kaplo, in his commentary on this koan, um, makes the point that um, nirvana is hardly ever mentioned in Zen. He says, it seems so remote, so in the future, so terribly far from our present moment and present activities. While training, training in Japan, I don't think I ever heard the word nirvana used except in a commentary on a koan such as the one we're discussing here. In terms of the day-to-day -day activities of normal training, even in Taisho's, it just wasn't used. Even when I was uh, in a monastery in Burma, I seldom, if ever, heard the word nirvana. Yet it's actually a rich word with powerful and inspiring connotations, and we'll get into those um, shortly. Actually, I had an experience of being with some... Um, uh, mostly... Uh, Theravada monks and nuns and they proposed that we, we um, next time we got together we could talk about about Nibbana and I can remember thinking to myself well actually we don't talk about Nibbana much 
in the Zen tradition. But we do have this koan, and and um, so we'll we'll have a look into it and see see hopefully get uh, a little clearer on on this this Mahayana perspective, um, which sum it up in in uh, three words: samsara is nirvana. So let's just read, start off by um, reading the, the case, the commentary in the verse, and then we'll look at each of them. So, Mumonkan number 48, Kempo's one way. The case. A monk asked Kempo, the Bhagavats of the Ten Directions have one road to Nirvana, Where, may I ask, is that road? Kempo held up his stick, drew a line, and said, Here. Later, the monk asked Ummon's help. Ummon held up his fan and said, This fan has jumped up to the 33rd heaven and hit the nose of the deity there. The dragon carp of the eastern sea makes one leap and it rains cats and dogs. So that's the case. And then the commentary. One goes to the bottom of the deep sea and raises a cloud of sand and dust. The other goes to the top of a towering mountain and raises foaming waves that touch the sky. The one holds, the other lets go, and each, using only one hand, sustains the teaching of Zen. What they do is exactly like two children who come running from opposite directions and crash into each other. In this world, such people who grasp truth directly are difficult to find. But if we look at these two great teachers with the true eye, neither of them really knows where the Nirvana Road is. And the verse, Without raising a foot, we are there already. The tongue has not moved, but the teaching is finished. Though each move is ahead of the next, know there is still another way up. Just a little bit about the two two um, teachers mentioned here. The first one, Kempo, his Chinese name is uh, Yue Zhao Chanfeng. Uh, we don't have any dates for him, and very little is known about him. Um, we do know that he was a successor to uh, Tozan, Dongshan in Chinese, the founder of the Soto School, Saodong School in Chinese. And uh, there are a few little stories about him. It's Kenpo. In Zen's Chinese heritage. Um, just just um, some little stories to get this sense of his style of teaching. A monk asked Kempo, How does one escape the three realms? The master said, Call the temple director and have him chase this monk out of here. Kempo asked the monks, the six tendencies of the turning wheel of transmigration have what eye? This is E-Y-E. The monks didn't answer. A monk asked, what is the talk that is beyond the Buddhas and ancestors? Chanfeng, as Kempo said, I asked you. The monk said, Master, please don't ask me. Tempo said, If I ask you, it doesn't make any difference. So I ask you, what is the talk that is beyond the Buddhas and ancestors? The other um, teacher in this case is Ummon 
His Chinese name is Yunmen Wenyan. His dates are 864 to uh, 949, so uh, after the Tang and before the Song, the Five Dynasties era. He, we have a lot of, of material on Yunmen um, Unmon, is considered to be one of the greatest masters, really a towering figure, so much so that he had the nickname the Emperor. Of course, the founder of the Unmon school, um, which died out about uh, 200 years after Unmon's time. Um, he's mentioned um, five times in the Mumon Khan and a total of 18 times in the Hikigan Roku. And he's known particularly for his um, eloquence. He never um, resorted to shouts or beatings as some of the other teachers around his time did. But rather he had uh, a, a venomous tongue. great eloquence again this is reading from um, uh, Roshi Kepler's commentary to this koan and straight to the heart of Zen He's um, quoting here um, Umon. This is one of his sayings. Even if I could utter a wise word by hearing of which you would attain an immediate enlightenment, it would still be like throwing ordure on your heads. Another time he said, Do not say that I am deceiving you today by means of words. The fact is that I am put under the necessity of speaking before you and thereby sowing seeds of confusion in your minds. If a true seer should see what I am doing, what a laughingstock I would be in his eyes. But now there is no escape from it. He was said to have been unusually eloquent as a child. And, and Roshi Kepler points out it was precisely because he was so adroit and adept at using words that he understood their danger. He says that in, um, if we look through the koans and the, and the stories, the Zen stories, um, there's really almost continuously um, pointing up the, the, the limitations uh, of language, how, they de- how language can deceive us. And yet, he says, clearly words and language are one of the wonders of the human mind. Yet the masters, nonetheless, caution us to be alert lest we become ensnared and entangled in them. The veil of words, it has been said, can all too easily cover over direct experience like a glove. Lost in words, we wander far from our real lives. In working with students, Uman was famous for his one-liners, that is, for his ability to respond immediately with penetratingly direct verbal thrusts. In this, he seems to have been something of a genius. The moment you step into my door, he said, I already know what kind of ideas you have brought with you. What's the use of again raising the dust long settled in an old track? Roshi Kaplow says, commenting on this, People today, too, sometimes come into Doksan and begin digging up emotions and feelings. 
we are so ready to go over the same old stuff and raise the dust of the same old track. We have been shut up within our own thoughts and memories for so long, we sometimes hardly seem to know what to do with freedom. By clinging to and then juggling old trinkets of thought and emotion, we trap ourselves. Carrying the corpse of dead emotions and and disinterring buried feelings, we bury the present, the future and even the past. It may seem natural enough, but it is really a deadening and deadly way to live. People often want to understand the meaning of recurring thoughts, emotions and images. To answer plainly, they have no particular meaning, at least not in an ultimate sense. On a psychological level, they do have meaning, and it can be quite helpful to air them, to acknowledge with them and work with them. But Zen does not engage directly in the psychological realm. And, and I would agree in general with what, what uh, Roshi Kaplow is saying here, but at the same time, um, there are some dangers in saying, well, Zen doesn't deal with thoughts and emotions and images. It does, it's true that it doesn't deal directly with the psychological realm, and it certainly isn't therapy, and it's, um, it's a real waste of, uh, of session time if we, if we um, engage in that kind of thing, kind of go, going over old issues and trying to work them out that's, that's not a good use of, of our time in a sashin but if we read this and then thought that we somehow had to um, get ourselves into shape before we come to Doksan and that we somehow weren't um, that this stuff has absolutely no place it would be quite wrong The best way to um, to come to Dogsan is um, as engaged as we can be in a practice. And if, if we're doing that, then so that's really all we can do. And we may find that that, that involves struggling with stuff. Coming to Doksan, even if we're in the midst of, of these kinds of struggles, can be helpful. It may involve saying something or it may not, but just the process of coming can be helpful. This is certainly my experience, that just going to Doksan, even if, if nothing was said, could help me to... Stay um, aware, or, 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 or remind me, you could say, of um, the great matter of birth and death. Just sitting in Roshi's presence, doing zazen, could help to bring you back to a, a wider perspective on what I might be struggling with in that moment. Why I might be why why I was practicing at all? We can uh, if, uh, otherwise we can get we can get sidetracked. It can be useful also at times to, to articulate what we're going through. It can, it can help us again to get some perspective on it, to, to um, shine some light on it or whatever the issue is so that we can, if not, if not let it go, at least let it be. We can stand back a little from uh, the content of our our thinking and see the thinking itself 
the, the container. One, one of the dangers that have been pointed out for, for Westerners in spiritual practice is um, spiritual bypassing where people can take up uh, spiritual practice um, as a way of, of sort of avoiding doing emotional work that they need to do. So this is just another factor in there, another uh, reason to be cautious about always not saying anything about what might be going on emotionally because there may be, there may be that um, uh, mechanism happening, that uh, defence. On the other hand, um, always uh, reporting on one's ups and downs is probably not that helpful either because actually it's not like the, the teacher can help you really, who can solve your problem or whatever it is for you. Um, sometimes a teacher can help by, by saying or do something, doing something that will, will just shift one's, one's view in some way or open things up a bit. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. I guess when, when um, dealing with the koan of when to talk and when not to talk in Doksan, it has to be a koan you, you look into every time you go in. It's not like we can, we can set out kind of rules for when to speak and when not to speak. What really matters is what's going on right now, what's happening in this moment, what's alive for you. So not, not um, necessarily going into uh, sort of blow-by-blow blow blow account of everything that's happened since one's last Doksan in terms of the practice's uh, trajectory. Because that's all past, or most of it's past by the time you come. But what's, what's the immediate, the matter at hand? I found often that I might have something that I wanted to bring up and um, then by the time I'd been gone through the Doksan line, sitting doing Zazen, it would have dissolved on its own. Either, either something would have come up for me that sort of resolved it, or uh, it just would pass. Um, but there were also times when I would um, not say anything more just because I felt that I was, if I was, I was going to be quiet if I was a good Zen student. And now looking back, I think, well, probably quite a few times when it would have been helpful to ask a question or say what was going on um, and, and just get a response from Roshi. The times when I could have missed out on that or did miss out on it. So it isn't, it, it, it isn't something where um, there's a kind of right or wrong to it. Um, one of the things about, about Doksan and about this, uh, the student-teacher encounter is that it's, it's one of intimacy and you may, at certain times, you may just not be ready to share something that's going on. There may not be 
the trust there. And that's fine. It's a process. It's a process of, of um, becoming more intimate. Just as working on a, on a practice, whether it's a con or a breath, shikantaza, is a practice of intimacy. And the, the, the two are, of course, closely related. Dogstan brings up uh, all our issues around self and other. That's what makes it so challenging. And so valuable. We can't escape. It's right in our face. So when Roshi Kaplow says here that that um, Zen doesn't deal with, doesn't engage directly in the psychological realm, I think it's important to to note that directly. Actually, you know, it can't, it's not like we can separate off the psychological realm. Um, it will be a part of of how we practice and our relationship to the to the, to the teacher and to each other, uh, obviously our, our psychological issues arise. But the point is that that Zen focuses on a more fundamental or more all-encompassing level uh, prior to... to the arising of, of a discriminating mind that's um, that's the, the I guess what what Zen has to offer that psychology often doesn't not, not saying it can't but um, the focus in Zen is on that um, the absolute mind Prajna, heart of perfect wisdom. Going back to um, Umon and his eloquence, he was um, he was famous for um, his his um, very short, pithy, um, often one-character responses to questions. Someone asked, "What is the right Dharma I?" All comprehensive was his answer. Someone asked, How do you look at the wonderful coincidence between the chick tapping inside its shell and the hens pecking from the outside? Umwan replied, Echo. Another question was, What is the one road of Umwan? He answered, personal experience. What is the Tao, the way? His answer was, go.
Okay, now to, to our case. A monk once asked Kempo, The Bhagavats of the Ten Directions have one road to Nirvana. Where, may I ask, is that road? Kempo held up his stick, drew a line, and said, Here. Later the monk asked Ummon's help. Ummon held up his fan and said, This fan has jumped up to the 33rd heaven and hit the nose of the deity there. The dragon carp of the eastern sea makes one leap and it rains cats and dogs. So just um, explanation of some of these terms. Um, the Bhagavats of the Ten Directions. Bhagavats is just another name for Buddhas. And uh, the Ten Directions means everywhere. And in, the, in Buddhist cosmology, there's said to be Buddhas everywhere. Just don't see them. The Bhagavats of the Ten Directions have one road to Nirvana. And this monk was actually quoting Sharangama uh, Sutra um, when, he, when he said this. Where, may I ask, is that road? So the monk has got these, these, this phrase from the, the Sharangama Sutra and he's trying to fathom it. Where is Nirvana? What is Nirvana? How do I get there? How do I get from, from my painful, deluded condition to a place of peace? Please, Master, show me where that road is. I want to know. I want to, I want to take that road and get to Nirvana. Really, this is a this is a question that we're all asking. It's the it's the question that brings us to practice. Why is there so much suffering in the world? How can I respond adequately to it? Say a little bit more about about um, this term nirvana. Again, going back to Rishi Kaplow's commentary, he gives a little bit of the history of it, especially the history of it in the West, where um, when it was first translated. People understood uh, only its, its literal meaning, meaning of extinction and um, then thought that Buddhism must be a very negative religion to have of its ultimate goal as extinction. Um, so the translators understood as meaning extinction of the individual, which of course it has nothing to do with. He goes on to say, in Mahayana Buddhism, Nirvana actually means eternal or absolute. It implies calm joy and the extinction of all suffering. And this is the case when both in the, in, this also would be understood as in the classical Buddhism and Theravada Buddhism as well. Extinction of all suffering. So while nirvana does literally mean extinguished in the sense of a flame being blown out, the extinction to which it refers isn't that of the individual, but of all illusory, limiting, pain-causing concepts, images and notions. 
Nirvana really means awakening to a supremely liberated state of being. It literally means the blowing out of the fires of suffering. Taking, the taking away of the fuel <coughs> that makes those fires of suffering burn. Fuel uh, is our delusions, our craving, our, uh, a vision. Entering nirvana carries the implication of leaving the physical body behind, thus suggesting death. This also helps explain the negative connotations that have surrounded the word. People habitually think that life is wonderful and death horrible, as though there were a clear separation between them. But the Buddhist experience is that ultimately there is no separation between them at all. Life and death form one seamless whole. They are really life and death. From the Buddhist perspective, things, just as they are, imperfect as they are, are the absolute, are the unbounded, are nirvana. Samsara, the world of birth and death, is nirvana. A little bit later he talks about about the Buddhist Paranirvana. So the Buddha um, had his, his great awakening uh, and then taught afterwards for 40 years and the Paranirvana is, the, is seen as the final um, passing from life into, into Nirvana. The meaning of this paranirvana is that it, it, is, it was not really death at all, but rather this entrance into supreme, complete nirvana, this is in which the limitations of a conditioned body and mind are completely transcended. Then truth, wisdom, awareness, energy, bliss, and selfless, compassionate activity are unimpeded. Final nirvana is actually a dynamic and vital state, not a static condition of nothingness or rest. The sutras also tell us that in truth, this condition alone is real, yet it is exactly what we in our ordinary condition find so hard to believe. You mean there's a state of absolute bliss, wisdom and compassion, and that alone is? and that that is actually my true nature. So it's hard for us to get a handle on it. Of course, you can't, you can't get a handle on it is boundless this is the um, this is the point but it's not a boundlessness that is somehow separate from our reality right now right here the monk asks Kempo about Nirvana and where, where the one road to Nirvana is. And Kempo takes up his stick, draws a line in the air, and says, Here. The monk doesn't find this helpful. He decides to go to see another master, Umon, to ask him. Umon held up his fan and says, This fan jumped up to the 33rd heaven and hit the nose of the deity there. 
The dragon carp of the eastern sea makes one leap and it rains cats and dogs. Poor monk, he thought the first answer was difficult. Well, what, what on earth is this guy talking about? It's kind of quite unlike Umon. He's you know, known for these austere one-line responses and all this stuff about a 33rd heaven and a deity and carp and rain and cats and dogs. What's going on? The 33rd heaven was the highest uh, heaven of the, of the, um, it's the realm of form, and the deity there was Indra. So somehow this Umon's fan goes up and whacks Indra on the nose, and then there's a dragon who, who leaps and it rains cats and dogs. So one of the points of the Khan is to, is to understand what Umon is saying here. The story of the dragon carp of the Eastern Sea is, a ver- is one that's often cited in Zen. Um, there's this legend that when this dragon carp gets to the um, uh, up this, this river to a certain place, it turns into a, a dragon. And the carp are like salmon. They have to leap up. Um, against the um, current of rivers to get to their spawning grounds. And so this is an image of the efforts, efforts we make in practice. We leap and we leap and we fall back and we fall back and we leap. But finally we get to the, to the headwaters of the, of the river and turn into a dragon. Awaken, in other words. And dragons have uh, long been associated with bringing rain. Rain that gives life. So one teacher austerely draws a single line with a stick. The other one fills us with um, vivid, vital, dynamic energy images. Commentary. One goes to the bottom of the deep sea and raises a cloud of sand and dust. The other goes to a top of a towering mountain and raises foaming waves that touch the sky. So Mumon here in his commentary is um, seems to be comparing one of these uh, teachings with another, but which is which? And what does he mean? bottom of the deep sea sounds like a place of great stillness, depth but there he raises sand and dust in the other image we have a, a high mountain but again with, with waves that come up and touch the sky He says, one holds, the other lets go, and each, using only one hand, sustains the teaching of Zen. So he seems to be praising them. Which one holds and which one lets go? Sometimes in our practice we... We, um, we need to work with discipline, with an edge. Just cutting away stuff that comes up. D- 
disciplining ourselves to sit, keep going through pain and all kinds of things. But sometimes we need to let go to to soften up, to relax, to surrender. Both of these are a part of our practice. What they do is exactly like two children who come running from opposite directions and crash into each other. So these two teachers may be coming from a different place, each of them, but they end up in the same place. In this world, such people who grasp truth directly are difficult to find. But if we look at these two great teachers with the true eye, neither of them really knows where the Nirvana Road is. Is he criticizing them? Do they really not know where the road is? How do you find this road? Knowing won't help you to find it. First, without raising a foot, we are there already. The tongue has not moved, but the teaching is finished. Though each move is ahead of the next, know there is still another way up. This notion that we uh, have to get from our suffering state to some other place where there's no suffering. It's a very persistent notion. Even though we may intellectually understand that um, there's nowhere to go, it, it raises its ugly head in our, in our practice. The way we, we discover this, this truth of being here already, not needing to go anywhere, is by stopping. Stopping and turning toward this, here. The tongue has not moved, but the teaching is finished. It's prior to words, this teaching. Presented to us in full, complete. So each move is ahead of the next. Know there is still another way up. We can put a lot of energy into trying to maneuver things. Doing what we think we need to do in order to get to where we want to go. 
And the more skilled we are at that kind of approach in our lives, the harder a time we'll have with letting go of that kind of manoeuvring chessboard kind of way of conducting ourselves. Know there is still another way up. <coughs> Completely different way from <coughs> our manoeuvring, our calculating, our planning. What is that way up? Where is it? No amount of words, even the most eloquent of words, not even Omwans, can tell us. Colette, the French writer, once said, What a wonderful life I've had. I only wish I'd realised it sooner. <laughs> we'll stop here in the site before the last.